The Wiz Kids had won it, Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. All right, everybody. Welcome on back to Baseball History 101. As always, I'm Patrick. I'm here with Matthew. Hey. Um, it's been a while since we were able to record one, so we had to knuckle a little dust off here. But this today's topic is going to be Ernie Banks. Um, Mr. Cub. Mr. Cub, Mr. Sunshine. Um, he's a pro baseball player for MLB as a shortstop and a first baseman for the Cubs from 53 to 71. Um, National Hall of Fame in 77 and all major league all century team in 1999 during that big ceremony at the all-star game at Fenway. Mm-hmm. Um, he was born in January 31st, 1931 in Dallas, and he passed away in 2015 in Chicago. Batted right through right, made his debut in 1953 for the Cubs and his final appearance in September of 71 for the Cubs. Um, he has a career 271 guy. 2,583 hits, 512 home runs, 1,636 RBIs, 14-time um, All-Star, two-time MVP, Gold Glove winner, two-time home run leader, two-time RBI leader, and his number is retired by the Cubs as well as being in their Hall of Fame. I guess I'll let you take it from there, Matt. Well, as we said, he was born in Dallas, Texas on January 31st, 1931. Um, he, he was the second of 12 children and his dad, he worked in construction as well as a warehouse loader for a grocery chain. So, you know, I can relate to that, at least working for a grocery chain. And, um, you know, his dad also played baseball for black semi-pro teams in Texas. So the baseball bug, you know, I think Ernie got that from his dad for sure. And his mom, hold on, don't forget about it. Um, As a child, you know, he wasn't, Ernie wasn't interested in baseball much. His favorite sports were swimming, basketball, and football. Yeah, he liked that more than he liked baseball. But his dad bought him a baseball glove for like less than $3 at a five dime store and motivated him to play catch. So his dad was determined to get Ernie to like baseball by just buying him a glove and say, hey, let's go play catch. I mean, fathers, man, they know best. (laughs) Sometimes that's all it takes, man. Yeah, you know. And while Ernie was in high school, he joined the Dallas Black Giants, which were a local semi-pro, local black semi-pro team in baseball in 1949. So, you know. He's about to graduate from high school, and he's playing for the Dallas Black Giants. You know, I mean, that's pretty cool. Um, And his mom encouraged him, encouraged Ernie to follow one of his grandfathers into a career in ministry. So, I mean, you know, 
I mean, at least there's that influence, but right. Ernie was just like, yeah, I could probably make more money playing baseball. And yeah, you probably can't part. You odds are you're going to make more money playing baseball to be mister. Nothing, nothing against that course, but you know, just, you're just going to make a lot more money doing that than being mister. <laughs> In the long run, probably have a lot more fun and lead on, meet a lot more people. Yeah, exactly. And go to places around the world, you know, I mean, so he graduated from high school in 1950 from Booker T. Washington High School in Dallas, and he lettered in base. I'm sorry, basketball, football, and track. The school did not have a baseball team, so he, to keep in shape for I guess baseball as well as playing for the Dallas Black Giants, he also played for he also played for a fast fast pitch softball team. You know. And he put and for a church for a church's fast pitch fast pitch stop. I can't talk. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, good. Fast pitch softball. Yeah, he played for a church's fast pitch softball team. You know, because fast pitch softball was big back then too. I mean, yeah, you, you don't know, see going, that very often anymore these days. No, unless it's just girls. You know. Yeah, I mean, if it's girls softball, like I remember, there was this guy named Eddie Fainer who was like the king of softball, you know, that's his whole shtick. He was the king of softball and he just toured the country, you know, throwing a fast softball and, you know, you can, you can watch video on YouTube, but he was something else. And he's actually, Andy Fanger's actually buried in Huntsville. The king, the, court. the king and his yeah, court king, were fast pitch also, he, weren't they? Yeah. That's, that's Eddie Fainer, king of okay. his court. He okay. was the king. Gotcha. He was the king gotcha. of the court. Yeah. I couldn't think of the, the team's name. I just, I just remember Eddie Fainer, you know, I think that's so, still a thing with replacement guys, kind of like the Globetrotters. Yeah, I mean, you know, just they keep soldiering on without their their leader. Or like uh, the Sunra Orchestra is without Sunra, you know. I mean, but anyway, so, you know, fast softball was big back then. It was it's more of a thing back then than it was now. You know, now you just see it in college and maybe some pro women's softball. But yeah, and then you, then you go to slow pitch once you're, what, 20? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> So, you know, and there's eventually Ernie Banks was discovered, but there's two conflicting tales of how he was discovered by like Kansas City Monarch Scouts. The first, um, the first uh, conflicting interest or the conflicting story is that a guy named Bill Blair, who scouted for the Kansas City Monarchs and was a Banks family friend, mm -hmm. he discovered. Uh, one tale says he discovered uh, Ernie playing baseball, but then another source says that Baseball Hall of Famer and Negro League legend Cool Papa Bell discovered Ernie Banks. So there's some conflicting interest in who actually discovered Ernie Banks. But the, oh, at least somebody did. Yeah, somebody saw him. They, they, they recognized his talent right off the bat. You know, they thought this kid's this, this kid's something special. And so in 1951, well, actually, no, he. After he graduated, actually, so, you know, he was scouted by the Kansas City Marks, and I think he played for them briefly in 1950. And then in 51, you know, the U.S. is in the Korean War, right? He got drafted by the U.S. Army, and he served in Germany during the Korean War because, you know, we have German, we have American uh, military bases in Germany. Even now today, we still do. You know, so he stayed in Germany during the Korean War. And he served as a flag bearer for the 45th Anti-Aircraft Artillery Battalion at Fort Bliss, which that's in 
I mean, I guess after his stay in Germany, he's, he he um, he moved to Fort Bliss, Texas, and was with the 45th anti-aircraft that anti-aircraft artillery battalion. And fun fact, he also briefly played for the Harlem Globetrotters. That's funny since talk. we just mentioned them. Right? You know, I mean, him and Ferguson Jenkins and Bob Gibson, those are three Hall of Famers that played for the Harlem Globetrotters at different times, of course. But, like, you know, they played for the Harlem Globetrotters. Like, that's pretty cool, man. <laughs> right. And so in 53, he was discharged from, discharged from the Army. And, of course, by then the Korean War was over. And he joins the Monarchs for the remainder of that season. And he hit 347. Not bad. And, of course, his manager of the Monarchs then was recently inducted Baseball Hall of Famer Buck O'Neill. And, you know, Ernie Banks always spoke very highly of Buck O'Neill. Like, even when, in 2006, when Buck O'Neill didn't get into the Hall of Fame, the first time around when they elected all those Negro Leaguers, Ernie Banks, like, stood up for him. He's like, hey, man, you know, this guy was great for baseball. Like, he went on the Keith Olbermann show back when Keith Olbermann was a thing and said, hey, you know, Buck O'Neill was great for baseball. I learned a lot from him. I think he should be in the Hall of Fame. It's it's a shame he's not in the Hall of Fame. But, of course, now he's now. But still, it's like Ernie Banks thought very highly of Buck O'Neill in his time with the Monarchs. So, and so, the best part, so, you know, as, as later on, Banks would say about his time with the Monarchs, playing with the Kansas City Monarchs was like my school, my learning, my world. It was my whole life. You know, I mean, he basically kind of grew up or came to age with the Kansas City Monarchs, you know, for a brief period of time when he played. But, of course, in 53, the Cubs, he signs with the Chicago Cubs after, you know, late in the 53 season. And, like, he didn't go to the minors. He went straight to the Cubs Mm -hmm. from the Monarchs. And he made his major league debut on September 17th, 1953, at 22 years old, and he played 10 games that season. I think he had Wrigley Field. I guess he didn't play any away games. But he was the Cubs' first African-American player, you know. And, of course, lots of people, you know, they try to keep up. I guess it's trivia. You know, people want to know who the first – who's the first African-American player on some sort of team, you know. I mean, obviously, Jackie Robinson never won for all of Major League Baseball from 1947 to present, but – you know, Ernie Banks has, you know, along with his talents, he's always got the trivia of, you know, who was the first Cubs, black mm-hmm. black Cubs player, you know. And that was in a time period where a lot of guys came from the Negro Leagues and just went straight to the majors. I guess they kind of treated the talent level at the Negro Leagues as minor league equivalent, I guess, you know. Mm-hmm. I would say so. But even then, but even like some, you know, even some Negro leaguers that went to the big, like Willie Mays, of you know, he also spent some time in the minor leagues before he went to the Giants. But it just, it, I guess they thought that either the Cubs were just so bad in 53 they needed people, or maybe they just really thought, you know, he doesn't need minor leagues, just go straight to majors. You know, it, it just depends. It just depends. I guess from player to player basis, what most uh, teams and scouts would think about certain players if they needed more. Mm-hmm season but if you like played so many years in the negro leagues like like satchel page like do you really need to go to minor leagues you know probably not <laughs> no <laughs> and um you know and some sports writers 
Larry Moffey and Jonathan Kronstadt wrote that in describing Banks and his role as the first black cub, you know, he was just not the crusading type. He was so grateful to be playing baseball for a living. He did not have the time to change the world. And if that meant some, if that meant some people called him an uncle Tom, well, so be it, you know, was some like, you know, he, I guess what he's trying to say, he's not like a Jackie Robinson trailblazer sort of guy. He's just like, Hey man, I just want to play baseball. I don't really care how I play baseball how I get there. I just want to play baseball. Yeah. I'm not here for the I'm not here to be a sideshow. Right. I, you know, I don't, right. I don't want like all this recognition, especially now today, like, you know, the media tries to like put labels on the first so-and-so the first, this, the first, that, you know, Ernie just didn't want that attention from that. He's like, I don't want to be known as the first so-and-so. I just want to be known by my talents, you know, on the diamond. But, um, so, I guess the Cubs were playing the Brooklyn Dodgers for his first major league game. Jackie Robinson came up to, uh, you know, came up to Ernie Banks during that game. And, um, you know, Robinson told him, hey, Ernie, I'm glad to see you up here. So now just listen and learn. For years, I didn't talk and learned a lot about people, you know. And so I would just be people watching, you know, just. And also, like, you know, when Robinson came up, you know, him and Branch Rickey had that deal where, you know, you can't, you got to like have some self-control and don't fight back when, you know, people call you bad names and try to pick fights with you because of your color of skin. Just, you know, stay calm and just be, be yourself and just, you know, win them over by your talents on the field, you know, and just observe, you know, and just be, you know, just, just be, you know what I mean? It's just, <laughs> you know, just be glad that you're here. You don't know? be, you know, but, um, you know, and so Banks said, wait, hold on a second. Later when Banks felt becoming more vocal, this is later on in his career, he discussed the issue with teammate and our fellow Alabamian Billy Williams who advised him to remain quiet. Williams drew the analogy of fish that are caught once they open their mouths. Banks said, I kept my mouth shut, but tried to make a difference. My whole life, I just wanted to make people better. You know, and so it's just, I guess it, he, he tried to come, I guess he tried to maintain or like be the role of a silent leader. I guess that's what he's trying right. to say. Yeah, you know, I mean... But then when he wanted needed to be vocal about something, it was like, hey man, just shut up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's stay in it's your lane. Something. Like Yeah, I mean, you know. And so in 53, his first season, in 10 games for the Cubs, he got 11 hits and 35 at bats. I'm reading on baseball reference. 11 hits and 35 at bats, one double, one triple, two home runs, six RBIs. Walked four, struck out five. He hit 314. So, not, you know, he did some good. You know, I, I would say he impressed in those 10 games with the Cubs after as a late season call up, you know. But then 54, you know, this is his first full season, and he actually plays all 154 games that year. 
fact, he did that in 55 as well. Like, he's just becoming a regular in the lineup for the Cubs. Like, and people are just, you know, noticing his presence. And so, you know, Ernie Banks is playing shortstop in 54, and his uh, second base double play partner was Gene Baker, who was the second black player in the Cubs. And they were were roommates together on road trips, and they became the first all-black double play combination in Major League Baseball. And they were good at it. They were good at it, you know. And the Cubs' first baseman at the time, Steve Bilko, who would hit like I think he hit like he had like an ungodly amount number of home runs when he was with the 1956 Los Angeles Angels of the Pacific Coast League. But that was like after he was hanging out with or playing with uh, Banks and Baker. But anyway, that's beside the point. So when Steve Bilko was playing for his base, Cubs announcer Bert Wilson referred to the Banks Baker Bilko double play combination as bingo to bango to Bilko. So I thought that was interesting, you know. I guess Cubs back in the Cubs fans back in the fifties watching, you know, or hearing the Bert Wilson talking about the game of nineteen fifty four. If they hear Bingo to Bango to Bilko, they know okay, Banks to Baker to Bilko, mm-hmm. which I think that's pretty unique, you know. I mean that's it's kind of unique, you know. And that year, Banks hit nineteen home runs, and he finished second to Wally Moon in the rookie of the year voting, because, you know, if you only play, you, I'm sure we've talked about this, but like the rookie of the year, you have to play a good amount of games in your first, I guess, first full season to be considered that. So like you mm-hmm. play 10 games, that's not going to get you like consideration for rookie of the year, but you play all 154 games the next season, then that's your rookie year. I guess. I'm wanting before. to say it. So you got to be on the roster for more than half the games or something like that to, for it to count as rookie year. There's some weird statistic where there's an actual time period slash number. Yeah. I would, we'll have to look that up for the next episode, but I just, but it has to, it has to be a certain amount of games, you know, where you're on the where if you played or on the roster. I'll try and find that real quick. We can mention it at the end if I can. Okay. And so he was using and banks started using lighter baseball bats because you know he liked he liked that it was easy to generate bat speed with the lighter bat some players in the old days like baseball hall of famer ed roush they he used like a a 48 ounce bat that's a heavy bat like if you're a baseball player and you you know that's a heavy bat but banks was like i want lighter bats so i can get better bat speed you know I can get to the ball quicker, hit the ball quicker, you know? So I find that, you know, it's, every batter has their own way of, you know, they have their preferences to their bats. I mean, Patrick, you've been to the Louisville Slugger Museum. You know, I mean. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everybody. Every, every something I was going to mention. Something I was going to mention talking about his lighter bat. If you ever, I was going to mention the Louisville Slugger Museum. They got a bunch of replicas of these old big leaguers bats and these little drawers. You can pull them out and hold them and mess with them. Mm-hmm. And um, like a Babe Ruth bat, man, the handle on that thing's probably an inch thick, and it weighs a damn metric ton. Like, yeah. Compared to somewhere like that, who's going to a lighter bat? It's not what the guys swing today. Like the three ounce, three and a half ounce drop, four ounce drop. These guys swing like some guys are two ounce. Like it's. Completely different. Yeah, it's just different times, man. 
But um, and then the next year in 1955, Ernie Banks hit 44 home runs, batted in 117 runs, and then he batted 295. And this was the first year he was elected to the All Star game. He was the starting shortstop, starting nationally shortstop in the 55 All Star game, Milwaukee. And this was his first of like 13 All Star games that he got to play in his career. And his 44 home runs in 55 was a single season record among shortstops, which I'm sure it's been passed now. I, I mean, A Rod, you know, or somebody's, I'm sure somebody's passed it, you know. But um, back in 55, that was eye opening, like, because most people think shortstops don't hit home runs, but well, Ernie Banks was not one of those shortstops. <laughs> There's been a couple guys a lot. There's a guy or two every year that knocks a few out, but yeah. And just um, you know, I mean, and he finished. Oh, you know, he also set a 30-year record of five single-season Grand Slam home runs. He had five home runs in a season, which are five Grand Slam home runs in a season, which I believe, I think my friend, I think it was, did you set that you? I we were talking said, about Grand Slams in this season last week, yeah. Right, because there was that stat that you sent me. Don Mattingly hit like six Grand Slams in his career, and all six were in the 1987 season mm-hmm. or something like that. So it's like – There's a whole you know, rabbit hole of directions you can go from that, like guys that hit this many every year compared to guys that hit them all in one year. And Yeah, I mean, wild. that's a, <laughs> it's just, And so that was a record that he set – until I guess Don Don Mangley passed it with six, which is just amazing. And for his efforts, Banks finished third in the National League MVP voting behind Roy Campanella and Duke Snyder, which both those guys were on the 55 Dodgers who won the World Series that year. And Campanella, I think that may have been his third. He won like three MVPs in his career. Campanella did. So it's hard to it's hard to top Campanella and Snyder that because the 55 Dodgers were just so hot that year. You know, but uh, it also didn't help that the Cubs had a 72-81 win-loss record in 55 because listen, the Cubs in the 50s and even the most in the 60s too, they were just not a good team. The Cubs were just, you know, going through those lovable losers phase, I guess. You know, they just weren't, they were a terrible team in those years. And, um, and out of their 77 road games, the Cubs only won like 29 road games. So I get that's pretty bad. <laughs> you know, but um, the next year, Banks missed 18 games because of a hand infection. And he broke it, well, due to a hand infection, he broke his run of 424 consecutive games played. So he had his own little uh, games play streak going. I mean, obviously, it's not impressive as. Cal Ripken or Lou Gehrig, but still. Well, nobody will ever get close to either one of those again. No, but if you play multiple, like, hundreds of games in a row before you get injured, I mean, that's I mean, that's an impressive feat in itself, you know. And, of course, at least maybe not much, so, maybe not so at Banks Day as in, like, earlier before Banks time. You you know, if you got injured, you most of the time people play, the players play through injuries. You know, there was no designated um, injured reserve list or whatever it's called now. It's, we can't call it the disabled list, but, you know, they didn't have that back then. You, 
you found a way to play. Otherwise, somebody's going to take your job, you know. <laughs> so, but still, I mean, that's still a remarkable feat that he's, you know, played in 424 consecutive games. Mm-hmm. And probably because of the, the hand infection, you know, he only hit like 28 home runs that year and 85 RBIs, but his average went up to 297. And he still made the all-star team, but, you know. So, I mean, it, it, it was kind of a down year for Ernie, but at the same time, he still put up some good productive numbers, you know. And then 57, he bounced back to hit 43 home runs and hired two RBIs, and his batting average was like 285. But, you know, again, still good, good average. You know, yeah, those are all-star numbers. Yeah, I mean, he's, um, a, he, he's a slugger for sure. Then we get into 58 and 59. Oh, I do have clarification on what determines rookie status. Awesome. So coming into the year in question, you have to have fewer than 130 at-bats or fewer than 50 innings pitch, in addition to fewer than 45 days on the active roster, excluding time on the disabled list, in the military, or September call-ups. Those don't count. And it was not until the late fifth, mid to late fifties when a rookie was defined. So right around this time period. And there's been some controversies over it, uh, especially with Japanese players who played in Nippon professional baseball, like Hideo Nomo, Kazuhiro Sasaki and Ichiro Suzuki, all having played at least five years in Japan and still being eligible for rookie of the year here. I mean, there can be some controversy about that, but it's like you're MLB rookie, I guess, you know, if you. Right. You know, I mean, that's, the Nippon League and Major League Baseball are two different leagues. So, you know, but uh, and then like, you know, 58. So these are like Ernie Banks's 58, 59. These are, I would say, peak Ernie Banks because he became the first National League player to be awarded back-to-back MVP awards. In both seasons, he led the leagues. He led the league in RBIs with 129 and 143, respectively. And he hit. He led the majors in 40 in 58 with 47 home runs. So that's you know, that's better than the previous couple of years where he had like 44 and 43. He goes up to 47, and he hit 313, which I think that was his highest. According to baseball reference, I think 313 was his highest uh, average that he hit in the season. But, you know, because he didn't hit 300 very often, but he's, that's pretty darn good, which was third best in the league at the time. And then the next year, he hit 304 with 45 home runs. And, you know, it's just, you know, he's doing great. He's winning these MVPs, but the Cubs are just still not great. I mean, 59 the Cubs at they would go 74 and 80. And that was at the time was the closest the Cubs had to a winning season since Banks' arrival. So, you know, Ernie's just doing his thing. He's doing his part to help his team, but everybody else on the team is just not on Ernie Banks' level by any stretch of the definition. You know. But as here's here's the interesting thing. During the 59th season, he had a small role in an unusual play that happened when the Cubs played the Cardinals at Wrigley Field on June 30th of 1959. Stan, the man usual, was at the plate facing Cubs pitcher Bob Anderson with a 3-1 count. Anderson's next pitch was errant. Basically, the ball went, got by the catcher, Sammy Taylor, and rolled all the way to the backstop. 
The umpire at the, of the game, Vic Delmore, called ball four. But Anderson and Taylor said that, you know, they, they claimed that Mutual tipped the ball. Like, he felt tipped it. Because they thought they heard it, you know, they thought he tipped it, but the umpire didn't hear the, you know, the, the tip of the bat and thought it was, a you know, ball four. So, you know, Mutual... Mutual was already walking the first because, you know, here at the Empire State Ball Four. But when Mutual saw that, you know, Delmore and Taylor and Anderson were still arguing about it, he realized that the ball was still in play. And so Mutual tried to run for second base. And because for the reason Alvin Dark saw that Mutual was running second, Alvin Dark ran to the backstop to retrieve the ball. The ball wound up in the hands of Cubs field announcer Pat Piper, but Dark ended up getting it back anyway. But, but the the umpire was absent-minded about the whole situation. He, he forgot that he didn't realize that the ball was in play still. So the umpire, Delmore, pulled out a new baseball and gave it to Taylor. And when Anderson noticed that Musial was trying for second, he took the ball from Taylor and threw it towards Tony uh, Cubs second baseman Tony Taylor covering second base, and the ball went over Taylor's head into the outfield. <laughs> so, I've had to read this three times to make sense out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's easier to see. It would be easier to see that in person. Than I'm having to. to I'm having to visualize it. So basically, wild pitch ball four. He tries to stretch it to a double. Somebody either in the stands or on the edge of the field ends up with the ball. The catcher gets a new ball. Both balls get thrown to second. The new ball gets thrown away. The real ball makes it, and they make a play. Like, it's just. Yeah, it's it's mind-blowing, you know. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to have to. That'd be something. I don't have time to do it right now, but that'd be something worth looking up um, and seeing if you could find. It's June 30th, 1959, Cardinals-Cubs. I'm sure if there's any video from that game, that'll be what pops up. Yeah, I mean, and Banks's role is that you know, Alvin Dark threw the the ball to him, and Musial didn't see that throw as he was declared out when the time was made. I mean, it's just it's hard to. Yep. Okay. And so, nineteen sixty, Banks not only led the national. National League, but all of Major League Baseball and home runs. He had 41 home runs that year, and he had 117 RBIs. And he led the National League in games played for the sixth time in seven years. This man loved to play baseball, you know, and just he would find any way to play baseball. I mean, just like his famous saying, let's play two, you know. He's he's so gay, he, you know. Coming from, you know, growing up when he didn't really care much about baseball until his dad basically influenced him to play baseball with buying him a glove to now he's like, man, I love playing baseball. Let's play too. I want to play, you know, all the time. You know, it's a lot, it's a big transformation. It seems like, you know, I guess the maturing of age, a big transformation for mm-hmm. him to just, you know, wanting to play baseball all the time. You know, and when you're good at things, they're a lot more fun. Yeah. And Ernie Banks was great at baseball. You know, it's a lot more fun, even on terrible Cubs teams, he still find ways to have fun. And, you know, just have fun playing ball. I mean, that's what we all want to do is just have fun playing sports and all that good stuff, you know? And so, you know, 
1960 was also he was the first Cubs player to receive a National League Gold Glove Award, and he won. He were he were he received it in 1960, and you know. And so here's a fun thing: the Braves, you know, the Milwaukee Braves after the se- well after the regular season before the World Series. Somebody reported that the Milwaukee Braves were prepared to pay cash and trade some pitchers to the Cubs in exchange for, well, some pitchers and then, let's see, outfielder Billy Bruton, shortstop Johnny, Johnny Logan, and first baseman Frank Torrey, which is Joe Torrey's brother. They wanted to trade all those guys to the Cubs in exchange for Ernie Banks. And, well, obviously that didn't happen. But the Braves just, you know, can you imagine Hank Aaron and Ernie Banks' teammates? You know, him and Eddie Matt. Yeah, I mean, that's just – I mean, let's be honest. Like, if he actually – if that trade actually went through and he became – Ernie Banks became a walking Brave, I don't think he'd be called Mr. Cub, you know? <laughs> yeah. I don't well, think the big part of being Mr. Cub is that full-length career there. Kind of like Chipper had in Atlanta and how he's just – the man there now, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's always cool seeing people, uh, players who play their whole careers for a team, just one team. Yeah. It doesn't happen very often, especially with the trade deadlines and whatnot, you know, and free agency these days that and, fr- and free agency, like these guys know. are getting stupid deals right now. Right. The Carlos, Carlos Correa deal. <laughs> Oh, that that was that was a that was wild the Carlos Correa thing, but that's off the subject. But you know, it's just it's it's easy to uh, it's not easy to stay with one team for your entire career like Ernie Banks could. But that man, you know. But now, so the next season, nineteen sixty one, he's exper- Banks is experiencing problems with his knee. And it was an old knee injury that he suffered during his time in the army. And so, you know, after his after his old streak of like four hundred, you know, four hundred and thirty four or four hundred forty three or something like that. Yeah, the first time around it was a four twenty four. Four twenty four. You know, after his streak of four hundred twenty four games ended in the fifties. He had another streak going until the 61 season. This time he went to 717 straight games played, 717 consecutive games. After that, he removed himself from the Cubs lineup for at least four games, ending his pursuit of the record for playing in the most consecutive National League games, which was set by Stan Musial, and he had 895 consecutive games for a National Leaguer, which, you know, of course, yeah, that's just crazy, man. I mean, you know, you're looking at, like I said, Lou Gehrig and Cal Ripken, who have over a thousand games played, and nationally, Stan Musial just had 895, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's. Yeah. And, and it, you'll be hard pressed to find anybody these days that makes it over 250. Yeah. It's. They're going to. They're gonna if find that. Some... If that. They're going to find some way to take themselves out, especially now, because now players have a, a paternity leave. 
that oh. and then you have the uh shortened dl that came up with about five or six years ago what was it um seven day instead of the uh, 10 yeah seven like day dl yeah i mean it's just you're not gonna see you know you're just not gonna you're not gonna see these long streaks you know that past like 100 games you know but it's you know it's a, it's a lost start i guess but you know because of this because of this na- this knee- nagging knee injury they got from the army the cubs decided that they were going to move well first they were going to move ernie banks to left field and have jerry kindle play shortstop and you know bank <laughs> and banks didn't like it you know you're playing in the obviously you're playing a different position you're not in the infield anymore and ernie said later talking about playing left field he said only a duck out of water could have shared my loneliness in left field like he just didn't want to he didn't like it but he credited uh cub center fielder and baseball hall of famer richie ashburn uh with helping him to learn to play left field and, you know, Banks played 23 games in left field that season, and he only committed one error. So that's good. You know, I mean, he, it seems like he adapted to it. And um, in June, they moved him to first base. You know, and he learned that position from, for, from Cubs coach and, you know, longtime Cubs player manager Charlie Grimm. And so I think that was a better deal. That was a better move for him because, you know, you're back in the infield. You know, you're not all the way out in the outfield trying to learn to play outfield. You're in the infield. You know, you're even though you can't play, you're not playing shortstop because of this injury. You're still on the field. You're still playing, and now you're just you know dealing with ground balls. You're not like throwing the ground balls to first. You are catching the ground balls at first. You know, so I think that helped him, and uh, just I think he was probably happier at first base than he would be at left field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, not on an um, island out there. At least you get somebody to talk to when they come around, and still fielding ground balls. And yeah, I mean, I played outfield in like little league and Babe Ruth league. I understand that feeling, you know. <laughs> and like you know, you can throw to the other outfielders, but if like center and right field were like thrown to each other, you had to rely on like a a player from the bench to come warm you up, you know, with throws in between innings, you know, I mean, it's just, I can understand that feeling, you know? Right. Um, but uh, he wasn't, this wasn't selected to be an all-star either. Um, and this is when they are having two all-star games. He missed the first all-star game, but he was selected as a reserve guy. And then in the second all-star game, he played as a pinch hitter. Oh. Um. And then the Cubs began playing under the College of Coaches in 1961. And that's a system in which decisions were made by a group of 12 coaches rather than by one manager. That's weird to think about. Um, Yeah, yeah, that was a disaster. (laughs) And then by 62, he hoped to return to shortstop, but the College of Coaches had determined that he would remain at first base indefinitely. In May of 1962, he was hit in the head by a fastball from a former Cubby Mo Drabowski and was taken off the field unconscious. So I'm um, sustaining a concussion. He was oh, in the man. hospital for two nights and set out a Monday game and then hit three home runs and a double the following Tuesday. So he came back strong. 
Yeah, you know. And even in 62, people, I mean, players were wearing, I don't know if he was wearing a helmet when this happened, but, you know, players that even in 62, there were still some players who didn't wear helmets. But by, because that wasn't a mandatory rule until 1971, you know. So, I mean, and even when you did wear a helmet, the, the helmets in 1962 were pretty primitive to helmets of today. You know, I mean, they could protect you to an extent, but nowhere near as the protection you have today with today's helmets. Right. Yeah. So, but, you know, even getting beamed is just not, not fun, you know. But uh, the next year in 63, May 1963, he set a single game record of 22 putouts by a first baseman. However, later that, later that season, he caught mumps. He had the mumps. And finished the season with just 18 home runs and 64 RBIs and a pretty low 227 average, which I felt, you know, I mean, of course, by now, Banks is in his 30s, you know. Injuries are catching up, and now the mumps are catching up to him. This might be a dumb question. We're vaccinated for that, right? Our generation is. I believe so, yeah. I'm I not sure. I'm not sure all the stuff they put in. I'm pretty sure that's one of them. <laughs> Probably should now. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that and tetanus and whatever. Right. But, um, yeah, I mean, mumps, I mean, that's that's just not something that I hear most most people of our generation say they have or even like, you know, I've ever had. Yeah, I've, I don't if I had mumps, I don't I don't remember it, but I don't believe I had any mumps, you know, as a, growing up. Yeah, I'm pretty sure but, we're um, vaccinated for that these days. Yeah, I think we're good on that. I'm not I'm not worried about it. Uh. You know, but here's the thing, even though in 1963 he struggled that season with the mumps, the Cubs had their first winning record since the 1940s. Banks is finally on a team that had a winning record. The 63 Cubs, so they finished in seventh place in the National League, eight of a 10-team National League, but the record was 82 wins, 80 losses. I mean, you're seventh place, but you have a winning record for the first time since the 40s. Good good for you, Cubs, you know. <laughs> oh, I also forgot to mention, in 1962, Buck O'Neill became a coach for the Cubs. So you can imagine Ernie Banks was thrilled about that one. So, and not only that, Billy Williams, who we mentioned earlier in this episode, Buck O'Neill scouted Billy Williams when – Buck was a scout for the Cubs. So, you know, Billy Williams was also thrilled that Buck was coach on the Cubs then. And so, you know, just a little tidbit there, going back to Buck O'Neill. But so the Cubs have a winning record, you know. But here's the thing. It's like, you know, after, you know, during the offseason, like Ernie Banks would uh, play handball and basketball during the offseason to keep in shape. But the doctor, but because, you know, of his mumps, uh, his uh, getting the mumps, the doctors told him to avoid doing that during the offseason. Just, like, get some rest. Don't don't overexert yourself doing this stuff. Just do your, just, just chill. And so he began the 1964 season weighing seven pounds more than the previous year. So he gained seven pounds 
during that 63-64 offseason because he didn't do his usual handball and uh, basketball, you know. But honestly, but like Bernie Banks was always been like a, you know, a skinny, fit guy. Like he was never like overweight. So it's like, okay, you gained seven pounds. It could be worse, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, and but in 64, you know, he did rebound. He hit 23 home runs, 95 RBIs, and 264 average. So it was a nice little rebound from the month season of 63. But the Cubs, they finished in eighth place, which, you know, I, I guess without a losing record. So they did worse than the year before because, again, the college coaches were not working. The Cubs were just, you know, going through the lovable losers phase, I guess. But 65, you know, he did better. He had 28 home runs, 107 RBIs, 265 average. And not only that, he played and started at first base in the 65 All-Star game, which I believe was in Minnesota, which is also the – yeah, I believe they hosted in Minnesota that year. And in September of 65, he hit his 400th career home run. And, you know, the Cubs were, like, losing money. Like, 64, they lost $315,000. 65 – they had an operations deficit of $1.2 but this was offset because they had television and radio revenue from WGN, and, you know, they let the Chicago Bears play Wrigley Field, which, you know, they were playing there before they played at Soldier Field, and so they were getting money, rent money from the Bears. So, but still, it's like, you know, the Cubs were just, they were just, like, in dire straits, man. They were just like, what are we doing? We're just sucking, you know. Well, you know. They spun their tires for a good just 35 years, man. They have a good one here or there, and and hell, they're spinning their tires again. They got that World Series and just slowly slid right back into the trench. Yeah. I mean, but now they have Dansby Swanson from the Braves, so maybe he'll help turn them around. (laughs) Bum. What a bum. Yeah. I mean, I know you're saying say that because you're a Cardinals fan, but still, you know. Well, no, but, I, I pull for the Braves too, man. It's like, I don't know. I, I just don't see any amount of money being worth going somewhere. I don't know. Well, I mean. Hey, he's. He didn't want to spend his whole career with the Braves, so he just left for more money with the Cubs. I know, but they got such a good – the Braves have such a good chance here in the next two or three years to win another World Series on yeah, paper. I agree. You know, like, I, I feel I, like I just stuck with the program. Yeah, you know, let's contribute. Because it's not like you were over the hill, you know, washed up veteran, you know. Right. But here's the thing. So the Cubs tried decided to do something – to change the program, 19, the program, their, their team. 1966, they hired Leo DeRocher, you know, Leo the Lip as their manager, right? Because this guy could win. He won with the Dodgers in the 40s. He won with the Giants in the 50s. This guy, and he's in the Hall of Fame as a manager. Like, Leo DeRocher knows what he's doing as a manager. He's a He was a real manager compared to the college of coaches, you know? <laughs> and so... You know, but 66, you know, they're still going crazy because 
there was they still weren't doing good because they finished in last place with a 59-103 record, which was the worst season in worst season in DeRosa's career as a manager. But you know, he, but DeRosa tried to trade banks. Like he tried to um he tried to trade Ernie Banks. He, he thought that uh, you know. Banks was aging because he's getting, you know, 1966 Banks was 35 years old. He yeah. only hit. I'm sorry, go ahead. DeRocher had a good quote about that in his autobiography. Yeah. It said, uh, Banks was a great player in his time. Unfortunately, his time wasn't my time. Even more unfortunately, there was not a thing I could do about it. He couldn't run, couldn't field. Toward the end, he couldn't even hit. There are some players who instinctively do the right thing on the base pass. Ernie had an unfailing instinct for doing the wrong thing. But I had to play him. I had to play the man or there would have been a revolution in the street. Yeah, because he's Mr. Cub. <laughs> no matter what he may be, what he may or may not be doing to help or hurt the team, he's Mr. Cub. You can't just do that, you know. You can't do it to the guy. And Banks said of DeRocher, "I wish there had been someone around like him in my early, early in my career. He's made me go for that little extra needed to win." So I mean, that's very complimentary, in spite of what DeRocher was trying to do, you know. And of course, you know, um, and of course, you know, in in uh, Ernie's memoir, Mister Cub, he said that too much has been made of the racial implications of his relationship with DeRocher, which I guess, I guess, I guess the press thought that for some reason. And he said, and uh, Banks said, my philosophy about race relations is that I'm the man. And I'll set my own patterns in life. I don't rely on anyone else's opinions. I look at a man as a human being. I don't care about his color. Some people feel that because you are black, you will never be treated fairly and that you should voice your opinions, be militant about them. I don't feel this way. You can't convince a fool against his will. If a man doesn't like me because I'm black, that's fine. I'll just go elsewhere, but I'm not going to let him change my life. I... You know, it didn't, I mean, I don't know why, I guess maybe because DeRocher's attempts to trade him, I guess the press thought, you know, maybe they just didn't get along because of the race or something, but it's like, that's just, to me, that just seems kind of far out left field. And Ernie didn't seem to think that there was a case between him and DeRocher. I mean, that's just, I don't know, man. I think I think the press just kind of made that one up. Just assumed that, you know, it, was, it just seemed kind of weird, you know? But the next year in 67, the Cubs made him made Banks a player coach. And so and he competed with uh, John Bocabella for the starting position at first base. And then DeRocher made him made him the outright starter at first base. So like they competed with he competed with Bocabella during the spring training, but like DeRocher's like, yeah, you're you're gonna be a starter. You know, <laughs> Boca Ball may be younger, but you're going to be the starter. You're, you're Mr. Cub. And 67, you know, he had 23 home runs, drove in 95 RBIs. Again, he's still putting reliable, productive numbers in spite of his aging, you know, and his uh, injuries and whatnot. He's still doing his thing. And he went to the All-Star game. And, you know, and so and then after the season, the – um, magazine Ebony 
wrote an article and said that uh, Banks was not thought to have made more than $65,000 in any season, which that would be equivalent to like $520,000 today or something like that. And he, you know, it said he had received a pay increase from $33,000 to $50,000 between his MVP season of 58 59. But Ebony said several MLB players were making $100,000 at the time. But like, you would have to go look through the Cubs archives to figure out how much he was making. Cause like, you know, let me see if somebody did that work for us on um, baseball reference real quick. You know, they had that uh, salary section at the bottom a lot of times. I forgot about that, man. Cause most times I just get stuck with stats. You know, I just don't even bother to look right. at their salaries. So salaries. <laughs> And baseball reference is a is a rabbit hole in itself. I mean, uh, I he peaked out in 1969 at 60 grand. Okay. And then 66 to 68 was 55, and then he made 52.5 and 65, 57 and 64, 55, 55, 57, 5, 50, and then it starts going back down. His uh, first year with the Cubs, his rookie year, he made six thousand dollars. Okay, so yeah, I guess Ebony Magazine was right. To, you know, that he probably wasn't making $65,000 in 67. But again, I mean, you know, times were different. And the Cubs, like I said, they weren't a good team. They weren't making, I mean, other than getting money from WGN and the Chicago Bears, they weren't making a lot of money, you know. I mean, they weren't, uh, uh, you know, they weren't, uh, you know, like Walter O'Malley with the Dodgers who had lots of money and he could go after, you know, pay players what they're worth. Yeah, and yet the Yankees with the deepest pockets because they're in a major market, you know, and always yeah. have been, even before Steinbrenner had the extra money. Yeah, um, and, so, and it's like, I just don't think, I, I think that, you know, the Cubs didn't pay him $100,000 a season because they couldn't afford to pay him $100,000 a season. I don't think it had anything to do with the color of skin. It's just, you know, they're like, hey, you're a middle market team. Right, and, you know, he's getting up there in age, you know, Injuries are hampering his, you know, playing time. So it's like, you know, even the Cubs had, even if the Cubs had a thousand, hundred thousand dollars, they probably would pay like Billy Williams that, you know, because he was young at the time, and you know he's, uh, you know he, he's going to stay around longer than Ernie Banks would, you know. Right. But anyway, so that was speaking that's of this, speaking of this, I got one more thing to add, and it has nothing mm-hmm. to do with Ernie Banks. Did you see? But it does have to do with baseball and salaries. Did okay, you yeah. see the thing? It might have been ESPN that shared it. Somebody shared it. I saw it on Facebook the other day. It was the Moneyball A's had a higher payroll than the A's did last year. And that I was think, that was in like what 97, 98, early 2000, something like that. I think I think the graphics said 2002. Okay. Yeah. Because it was, it was and it, was, it wasn't by like a million dollars. It was by like eight million dollars or something like that. Yeah. It was it a was, chunk. Yeah, I mean, it was like, wow, that's it's really declined because I saw it, that and it really made me scratch my head and be like, really? The, the, the current the current A's ownership doesn't care, and they're just thinking about moving to Las Vegas. They don't they don't want to put any more money in the club than they. That's have why to. they averaged, I think, three thousand people per game attendance last year. There's like yeah. thirty six hundred. My friend yeah. Nick Bald, my friend Nick Baldwin, who I went to high school with. He's like two grades below. He was two grades below me. He actually was on a business trip to the Bay Area this summer, and he went to an Oakland A's game. And he didn't he get like, stabbed leaving. As far as I know, he didn't. But like, <laughs> he, he, but like on his Instagram story, he was showing footage of 
I guess he was had seats in the outfield bleachers with like the, the drum section, and he's just like filming, you know, like uh, in the Coliseum, and there was like hardly anybody there as everybody expected. Nobody's gonna go to these A's games. No, especially not with them threatening to move the team. Their season right. ticket sales went down by eighty percent when they announced that or something like that. It was wild. Right. That and the team's terrible, and you're not putting any money in the team, and so, you're just think, and you're just hoping and praying that the MLB owners will vote for you guys to go to Vegas. They, you know, Oakland's trying to keep the team, but it's like they still want to stay. Even if they build a new stadium where the Howard Terminal site is in Oakland, they don't want. They just don't want to stay. They want to go. They, they're done with Oakland. Tired of competing with the boys over the bridge. Right. You know, they can't compete with the Giants. They've been competing with the Giants since they came to Oakland in '68. You know, <laughs> all right, but back to Ernie Banks. <laughs> right, sorry, sorry about that, but still, no, no, no worries, man. Sometimes it's good to get on a tangent like that. Oh yeah. So, in '68, he won uh, Banks won the Lou Gehrig Memorial Award, which is honored, which it recognizes playing ability and personal character. Which I think that would be, I think that that fits Ernie Banks pretty well. He seems like he has strong character, and. uh Obviously, his playing skills are great. So I think that was a well-deserved award. And he had 32 home runs and 83 RBIs, and he finished with a 246 batting average. And so it's like, you know, another productive year for Ernie. Nothing new except the average is kind of low, but still, I mean, nothing, nothing too uh, drastic. And then 1969, the Cubs had a great team. They had a crazy winning record. I mean, DeRosa's still the manager, and he's just like, he's got the Cubs, you know, actually winning games. At one point during the season, they had an eight-and-a-half game lead in the NL East in August. You know, and, of course, this team had Banks and Ernie and uh, Billy Williams and Ferguson Jenkins and Ron Santo on the team. You know, four Hall of Famers right there. But, uh, you know, but the Cubs blew the Cubs blew the uh, the lead because they were they were facing them because both the Cubs and the Mets were in the uh, NL East in 1969, and the Cubs blew the lead and they, because a black cat walked by their dugout at Shea Stadium and it was over. It was over for the Cubs then. You know, they they kissed that lead goodbye. Damn Cubs! If it ain't a goat or a cat or Steve Bartman. Gotta have excuses. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's <laughs> piss some Cubs fans off, but it'll be all right. They'll be all right. Yeah, I mean, that was the closest to earning to for Ernie Banks coming to a, a National League pennant and a chance to play in the World Series. Because as you know, he he never got to play in the World Series in his career, and which is sad, you know. But not everybody can play in the World Series. That's why the two best teams in each league play in the World Series. That's part of being a cub. Yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, but they've got one World Series team since the drought started. Or not yeah. a couple times. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, so the last – before 2016, they won in 1908. They won the pit in 1910, 1918, 1929, 32, 35, 38, 45. But after and that – After that, no other World Series appearance until – 2016. No, no, yeah, 2016. So, you know. But uh, 
Also in 69, Banks made his final all-star all-star appearance in that year. And, and they, I think they played it, they played the uh all-star game in Washington, DC that year at RFK Stadium. You know. But then the next season, 1970, Banks hit his 500 career home run at Wrigley Field on May 12th. But you know, in 70, 71, he's not playing a lot of games. He's slowing down. You know, when it comes to uh, playing, he's just not playing enough enough games. In 70, he played in 72 games. In 1971, he played 39 games. You know, he's slowing down, and he's just not hitting. Like, home runs, he hit like two. What was it? He had 12 home runs in 1970 and only three in 1971. And 71 was his last season. He hit like 193. You know, I mean, he's 40 and 71. And after the season, after the 71 season, Banks retires. He's like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. It's time to let some younger guy take my spot. You know? So the, after that, the great career of Ernie Banks is over. You know? But even though he retired as a player, he continued to be a coach for the 72 and 73 seasons. And he was a minor league instructor for the next three seasons, and he also worked in Cubs front office. So he stayed involved with the team, you know, because he's Mr. Cub. You know, he, the Cubs were like, we need we need Ernie Banks around. We don't need him to just enjoy retirement and not thinking about us. We need him around, inspire the players, you know, help them out, give them advice, because, you know, he's Mr. Cub, and he was so revered, you know. And so – and. You know, he finished his career with 512 home runs. He's a member of the 500 home run club. And 277 home runs they hit as the shortstop were a career record at the time of his retirement. But, of course, as we discussed in the Cal Ripken Jr. episode, Cal, helped, Cal owns that title now. And they he probably like, will for a while. Yeah, he had 345 as a shortstop, you know. And Banks holds Cubs records of games played, which was 2,528. Uh, at bats, 9,421. Extra base hits, 1,009. And total bases were 4,706. And, you know, he only won one gold glove, which we talked about in 1960. And he led the National League putouts five times and was nationally leader in fielding percentage as a shortstop three times and once in the first baseman. He could play some defense, you know. Man just knew – I mean, he could play. I mean, he was not just a great slugger. He could play some defense. You know, you wanted, you wanted him out on that field, you know, playing. If he's not hitting, you want him on the field, you know, fielding ground balls and getting put outs and all that. You know, but here's the thing. He does hold a major league record. He holds the major league record for most games played without a postseason appearance with 2,528. That's not a record I want to hold. No, and I don't think he would want to hold that. In his uh, in Banks's memoir, memoir, he cited his fondness for the Cubs and the owner of the Cubs, Philip K. Wrigley, who was the son of William Wrigley. Um, Banks said that he did not regret signing with the Cubs, rather than one of the more successful baseball franchises. Right, so he's like, yeah, I have no regrets. Yeah, if I had to do it over again, I still sign with the Cubs. Which is good for him. I mean, <laughs> you 
you know, some players are probably wouldn't be like that. They'd probably like, no, I'd rather sign with like the Dodgers or the Yankees. Or- well, there's probably a part of him in the back of the head that he never pays for dinner in Chicago again because he was the guy on such a mediocre team for so long. Right. You know, he brought – he made the Cubs – he made people pay attention to the Cubs through those dark years in the 50s and early 60s. That man went out for drinks. He didn't have to pay for one. Probably you know? did, Yeah. I'm some. I'm sure somebody was picking up that tab, <laughs> but um, because of his popularity and positive attitude, you know, it led to the nicknames Mr. Cub, Mr. Sunshine, and of course, we talked about the catchphrase. The full catchphrase is, "It's a beautiful day for a ball game. Let's play two. Expressing his wish to play a doubleheader every day out of his love for baseball. You know, and of course, in 1977, he gets elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. I believe that was his. I believe that was his first year of eligibility too. So he didn't have to wait too long to get in the Hall of Fame, you know. And of course, he was married. I believe he was married twice. Uh, three was, times. Oh, three times. Excuse me, I, I can't count. <laughs> yeah, married the first time after he returned from military service. Uh, he married his first wife, Molly Ector. He proposed to her in a letter from Germany. Um, they filed for divorce two years later and then reconciled in 59. And by that summer, they agreed on a divorce settlement that would pay $65,000 to Hector in lieu of alimony. Yeah. And then he eloped with the uh, Alois Johnson. They had twin sons and within, within a year and a daughter four years after that. In 63, for failure to make payments on a life insurance policy, that led to a divorce. Oh, wow. Um, it's also noted that he was a lifelong Republican, and he stated once that I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going. I'm not wanted. Prompting critics to claim that he was soft on Jim Crow. He ran for alderman in Chicago in '63. Ran in the eighth ward against Democratic incumbent James A. Condon. Uh, he finished a distant third, gathering just 12 percent of the vote, and uh, Condon won re-election with Gerald Gibbons coming in second with 25 percent. He later said, "People knew me only as a ball player. They didn't think I was qualified as a government official." And no matter what I did, I couldn't change my image. What I learned was that it was going to be hard for me to disengage myself from my baseball life, and I would have to compensate for it after my playing days were over. He endorsed George W. Bush for president in 2004. Um, and then in 66, he worked for Seaway National Bank in the offseason, enrolling in a banking correspondence course. Um, he bought into several business ventures, including a gas station during his playing career, Um even though he'd been paid well compared to other ball players, he had taken the advice of Wrigley and invested many of his earnings. Um, worked in insurance for a trucking company. Um, he built assets that would be worth an estimated $4 million by the time he was 55. Nice. So going back to his salary, he made like, I'm wanting to say it was like six hundred grand in his whole playing career. He was worth $4 million. Yeah. I mean, that's smart, man. Yeah, you know. um, he was the first black owner of a U.S. Ford Motor Company dealership with a guy named Bob Nelson. Uh, they uh, owned Ernie Banks Ford on Chicago's South Side, um, in in White Sox territory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure White Sox fans love seeing that. <laughs> and um, in 1969, he was appointed to the board of directors of the Chicago Transit Authority. And then um, he even met the Pope, and the Pope presented him with a medal on his way on a trip from through Europe. He went on. 
And then um, his wife, Lois, and he divorced in 81. She received several valuable items from his playing career as part of the divorce, including his 500th home run ball. And she sold the items not long after the divorce. Um, he oh. remarried in 84, which I'd be devastated by that. Um, he remarried yeah. in 84. And in 1993, his third wife, Marjorie, was part of a group that met with MLB executives to discuss race relations in baseball after the racial slurs of old Marge shot up in Cincinnati. Yeah, she, she'd probably get her own episode. <laughs> she could. Yeah. Um, oh, he has four wives. He married Liz Elsie in 1997, and Hank Aaron was his best man. And in 2008, he and Elsie adopted an infant daughter. Wow. <laughs> and then, you know, in his family, his nephew, Bob Johnson, was a major league catcher and first baseman for the Texas Rangers between 1981 and 1983. And his great nephew, A.C. Law, was a, is a professional basketball player who attended Texas A&M before playing in the NBA. So that's cool. I mean, you know, athlete, athletics run in the family, you know. Um. The one that played basketball, AC, he is known for the shot in Texas A&M basketball lore as a uh, buzzer beater three to beat Texas in 2006. Um, wow. And then he played in the NBA. Let me see. He played in the NBA briefly for uh, Golden State from – he got drafted by the Hawks, and he was a journeyman in basketball. He played till 2011 in the league. So that's, you know, you got to play in the NBA. Nobody, no, it's kind of like, you know, playing Major League Baseball. Nobody can take that away from you, you know. You you were – he is a former NBA player. Yep. And then he went and played a little bit of Euroball and has a couple Euroball championships. Oh, okay. I mean, kind of like Trevor Lacey playing Euroball, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, so going back to Banks' National Hall of Fame induction – in his first year of eligibility, this was in 77, he received 321 votes out of 383 ballots. So he got, it, it was over 75%, you know, he, he got in. <laughs> Though several players were selected through the Veterans Committee and a, the Special Committee on Negro Leagues that year, Banks was the only player elected by the Baseball Writers Association of America. And in his induction speech, you know, he he kind of quoted his, his saying. He said, "We got, you know." He said, "We got the setting, sunshine, fresh air, the team behind us. So let's play too." And I thought that was a great way to, you know, mention that in his uh, induction speech. And the Cubs retired his uniform number in 1982, which was number 14. You know, and at Wrigley Field, so he he was the first player. To have his number, his first Cubs player to have his number retired by the Cubs. And at Wrigley Field, if you go to Wrigley Field, they the retired numbers of the team they fly on a flag and the flag they're mm-hmm. on a flag and they're flying the flagpole, which is really cool. You know, I mean that's compared to like other teams who just like you know put the retired numbers on the outfield wall or something. That that's unique, you know. Um. You know, and so out of at, through the 2020 season, you know, Banks is one of six former Cub players, along with Jackie Robinson, because of obvious reasons, to have had their numbers retired. Which, you know, that 
that takes you know that's pretty special, man. You know, especially on a franchise that's been along that around that long. Yeah, and also, I mean, you, you compare that to the Yankees, who've had so many numbers retired. They're just running out of numbers, you know. <laughs> oh, they're gonna have to start having to be like number seven A, like it's a dirt track race car. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I feel like you know they should be more like the Washington Nationals and have like just a ring of honor, like some NFL teams do, instead of just retiring numbers. Just put your put the ring, you know, put your name up in the ring of honor and not really retire it because eventually, the more teams retire numbers, the less. You know, we're going to get into like number of 100 something, you know, for a player. And that just seems ridiculous, you know? It's going to be not important. Right. So it's like retire everybody's number. Yeah. Just, I mean, I'm glad the Cubs only have like six. But then again, it also shows that their futility between 1908 to 1908 to 2016, you know? And some of their best players didn't wear uniform numbers. Like, Tinkered ever was a chance. They, they they never wore numbers. You know they played before numbers, so you can't really retire their numbers. So the Cubs, <laughs> that's why the Cubs have this Hall of Fame, I guess. But you know he's just he was the team ambassador. You know I mean he was he he, he spent his bank spent his time as a team ambassador of the Cubs because he's Mister Cub, you know, and you know. Now, but here's the funny thing. In, in 1983, shortly after the Wrigley family sold the team to the Tribune Company, which owns the Chicago Tribune, Banks and the Cubs briefly severed ties. <laughs> because, uh, you know, after the sale, I guess the Tribune Company viewed Banks as something of a crazy uncle who hung around the house for no apparent reason. And to that, I say, bullshit, that's Mr. Cub. Right, but <laughs> you don't you don't disrespect Mr. Cub like that. And the team officials, and that team officials anonymously told the press that Banks had been fired because he was unreliable. But afterwards, soon afterwards, the Banks and the Cubs reconciled, and he resumed making appearances on half the team. Which good call to reconcile, but you just that, that shouldn't have happened to begin with, you know. You know, that's not how you treat Mr. Cub. Mr. I'm in the 500 home run club, and I'm giving my all to this franchise for... I probably could have gone and played somewhere else, but I like playing for y'all so much. Right, you know. And I'm not like, you know, I'm just trying to help the team. I'm just being there. I'm representing the team. I'm being a good ambassador. You want me as a role model. You do not want me, you know, not being involved with the team. That's a, That was a bad mistake on the Tribune Company in 83. But, you know, I mean, and when the Cubs won the NL East in 1984, the club named Banks an under-18 member. <laughs> hey, buddy, we screwed the pooch. Sorry. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, just and at one point in 2006, Crane Chicago Business reported that Banks was part of a group looking to buy into buying the Cubs in case the Chicago Tribune Company decided to sell the club. But that didn't happen because the Ricketts own it. The, I believe the Tribune Company, I think sometime in 2010, sold to Ted Ricketts and his family. And Ted Ricketts kind of looks like Ted Cruz. I'm wanting to say Ted Ricketts' family brought the Tribune mainly just to buy the Cubs and not as much the paper. 
Yeah, I'm willing to say I read something like that. That might not be factually true. Like if I'm wrong, I apologize. I'm wanting to say that was a big part of the deal. I mean, they can't they can be Steve Cohen and just make a whole bunch of money doing inside trading and whatnot, dude. You know, (laughs) I got Steve Cohen problems. We'll talk to off this podcast. Yeah, but the Mets might be a wagon next year. I'm saying he. I don't know. I kind of like Steve Cohen. I'm not even a Mets fan. <laughs> because of just the buzz he's creating. But anyway, back to back to Eric Banks. So just like his mother insisted him doing, Banks was an ordained minister. And he presided at the wedding of MLB pitcher Sean Marshall. I mean, like he so he took his mother's advice and became an ordained minister. So good. I mean, he followed, you know, he did what his mom wanted him to do as well as what his dad wanted him to do, which is great because sometimes, you know, depending you know, depending on parents and situations, you know, one parent might want you to do something, you know, with your life and the other parent doesn't want you to want you to do something else. So I'm glad that he was able to combine both worlds and please both his parents in that way, I guess, you know. <laughs> yeah. And of course, he got a statue outside Wrigley Field in 2008. And uh, this is one of know. my favorite things ever, right here, because you know the <laughs> Pearl Jam's big time Chicago band. Yeah. And uh, Eddie Vedder put a song out that they played at his statue unveiling called "All the Way," which Ernie had asked Eddie to write about the Cubs as the birthday gift to himself. Yeah, and Eddie Vedder is a huge Cubs fan, so oh, they play they play it. Wrigley every year. Yeah, so of course he's going to do it, you know. And uh, 2009, Banks was named a Library of Congress living legend, the designation that recognizes those who have made significant contributions to America's diverse cultural, scientific, and social heritage. And he received the President's Royal Freedom in 2013, along with Bill Clinton and Oprah Winfrey that year. And during the ceremony, uh, Banks presented... President Barack Obama with a bat that had belonged to Jackie Robinson. That's cool. And Banks remained close to the Cubs team, made frequent appearances at the spring training camp and the spring training grounds, the Ho Ho Camp Stadium, which now they train somewhere else. And I think the A spring training Ho Ho Camp Stadium, but Ho Ho Camp was the longtime Cubs uh, spring training site. And, uh, you know, at the time the Cubs didn't have a mascot, which that's that's a that's a story we could get into another time. So the author Harry Strong wrote in 2013 that the Chicago Cubs do not have a mascot, but they hardly need one when the face of the franchise is still so visible, referring to Ernie Banks. Which yeah, you know. And then he was also inducted as a laureate of the Lincoln Academy of Illinois and awarded the Order of Lincoln, which is the state of Illinois' highest honor by the governor of Illinois in 1970 in the area of sports. And then he passed away on of a heart attack on January 23rd, 2015, which was eight days before his 84th birthday. And, you know, I mean, lots of people spoke at his funeral, like Chicago Mayor Ron Emanuel, Joe Torrey, and Billy Williams. And the, and the funeral procession after the service moved past Wrigley Field, which, yeah. <laughs> And then, I mean, just... Uh, it kind of gets sad right here. Because um, after his death, there was a legal battle over his estate and the disposition of his body. Um, his estranged widow 
Elizabeth said that he had amended his will in October without her knowledge. And it left all of his assets to his longtime caregiver, Regina Rice. Um, and supposedly he had been diagnosed with uh, dementia shortly before the change in the will. A Chicago funeral home sent Elizabeth the bill for $35,000 in funeral costs, and the bill went unpaid as Elizabeth challenged the legality of the new will. Um, and then in March, the Cubs paid the funeral home costs. Wow. Um, he was buried in Graceland Cemetery just a few blocks north of Wrigley Field. during uh, And during the entire 2015 season, the Cubs had a number 14 behind home plate. As it should. But it's also kind of sad because, you know, the next year the Cubs won the World Series and Ernie wasn't there. He spent his whole life as did so many other people between 1908 and 1916, living there, 1908 and 2016, sorry, living their whole lives without the Cubs winning, seeing the Cubs in the World Series. Fans, hot dog vendors, parking lot attendants, just people from Chicago, players. There's so many people that meant so much to when they finally won that. Yeah. And I'm sure, and of course, Steve Bartman too, but of course he couldn't like, you know, openly come out and just say that. But still, it's just like it meant so many, and it was just a great moment for baseball history. You know, like I told, like I talked about in the World Series episode, which I'll admit I don't think many people could hear me talk because my mouth was away from the microphone for some reason. <laughs> you know, you could barely hear me on that episode. But I was telling you, it's like, hey, you know, I during Game Seven, I was working at Publix in Hampton Cove, and I had to close that night. And we got everything done. We got all the clean done. And we, we closed at 10. And, you know, we, we cleaned everything. And I go to my manager. It's like, hey, you know, we cleaned everything. You know, we're, I'm ready, we're ready to go home. Let's, let's go. And she's like, are you sure everything's clean? I'm like, yes, ma'am. Everything is clean. We've done this. It's good to go. We got other, I got other things to do outside of work. Why well, got to go watch Team 7 of the, of the World Series? Because the Cubs are going to extra innings against the Indians. I got to see this, you know. And I made it home in time to watch the rest of the game. And I got to see the Cubs win the World Series on TV. And even though I am not a Cubs fan, I was still, you know, very happy that the Cubs won. And it was just great to witness baseball history. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I was with Lynn Hayes, and Russell came out and watched it with us at Sports Page. And he left when the rain delay happened. And it's like, this is going to be a quick rain delay. Why are you leaving? And he left. <laughs> I got some bullshit excuse. He's always got one. And if you're listening, you know you do, Russ. And, um, <laughs> Uh, so during the rain delay, we shot over. No, we stayed there, and then me and Lynn Hayes walked out of a different bar at sun up that next morning. Man, it was such a great time. And I'm not even, you know, I'm I'm not supposed to like the Cubs. Yeah, but seeing my friends who are Cubs fans having that excitement and just partying with them and having soaking it up, you know, it was. I think I was, I think I heard "Go Cubs Go" about a hundred times that night. <laughs> This song, man, I mean, I mean, it's a good song, but it's like, if you're not a Cubs fan, it gets tiring really quickly. But it's still a nice song, you know. Yeah, play it after your win, call it good. Exactly, you know, I mean, just, you know, play it, you know, play it after you win, you know, don't need to play it, like, all the time, especially not when you lose, you know. Why would you want to, you know, play that when you lose? But, um... You know, that's life. And, of course, I think in, like, a couple of years after his death, a couple – two authors wrote, like, two different biographies about him that were published the same year. And I'm sure – and, like, you know, 
I wish I could remember what they were called, but it's like I felt that it was like kind of poor timing that like you know Ernie Banks guy has like two different biographies of himself out in the same time, and readers who want to read more about Ernie Banks' life, you have to choose like you feel like you have to choose between one or the other because you know yeah, a lot of people don't have time to read them both. Right, and especially especially nowadays with you know people's some people have some short attention spans with. Some people are just too busy on TikTok or whatever, you know. <laughs> you know, they don't have time to read two different biographies about Ernie Banks. But it's like, it's, I feel like it's poor timing that, you know, these two authors both wrote biographies on Ernie Banks and they both happen to be released the same year, you know. <laughs> but I'm sure I'm sure they're both good in their own right. And maybe I'll get, I'll get on to read at least one, maybe both of them in the future. But it's just like... You know, how many biographies can you write of one person? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, all these different authors that like sports are able to try to get in there and get their pennies off of uh, any story that's good. Yeah. And I, and, you know, and, but I'm sure they're both very good, but it's just, you know, uh, <laughs> I just found it remarkable that it's, I felt that it was poor timing for both of them. But anyway, I don't really have any much to add about Ernie no, Banks. I think, I think we pretty much covered everything we could on him. Yeah, I mean. Well, I think know. of the Cubs. I think of him, Sammy, Mark Grace, um, Carlos Zambrano's wacky ass. That's really about how far I get down the last <laughs> list, you know? like. Yeah, I mean, I think of war players, but like, like I said, I know. Just when you think of the Cubs, them that come right to the top of your head. Yeah, and, and even more so than like Tinker's Ever's a Chance, you know. But uh, and uh, my friend Will Stewart, who we went to high, well, I went to high school with. You went to high school with too before you transferred to Lee. He's a Cubs fan, and like I think the day after we released the Roberto Clemente podcast, he contacted me on uh, Facebook via Messenger, and he's like, "Hey, I just listened to your podcast. It's great." And you know, he's a big he loves the Cubs. And I told him, I said, hey, if you have any ideas, just like reach out or go on baseballhis101 at gmail.com for ideas. And he said, uh, you know, I kind of like anything Cubs because he's a Cubs fan. And I think he suggested like making, you know, an episode about like the like episode about the team's history. And I told him, like, you know, we could do that, but it's like we're more inclined to do like individual moments. Play- yeah. Individual- players. Or, or players. Yeah. I mean, Maybe if it's like the St. Louis Browns who don't are not around anymore, we could probably do a history on that. But it's like we're more inclined to do like players and moments. And I told him I was like, you know, we could probably do one like on Ernie Banks. And he said, Oh, I'd love an episode of Ernie Banks. So I I wanna it works. I guess yeah, it works. And just to shout out Will for the topic idea. Yes. Yeah, you know. And so and now that we're doing this via Zoom, it'll make us easier for to get Zvin on. Yeah. Which that could be either really awesome or just a train wreck of an episode, because you know how he can get going. But <laughs> love you, Sven. <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, just you know, and and um, I'm gonna be brief, but like before, uh, I guess a non Ernie Banks related thing, but more of a Cubs related thing. This year, this there's a pitcher named Brandon Hughes who made his debut with the Cubs this year. And he was a reliever, and um, he went like two for three, two wins, three losses, 3.12 ERA, and he saved like eight games for the Cubs. 
and there were in 57 games. And the reason I bring him up because the year in 2021, he was playing double A ball with the Tennessee Smokies. And during a game, a Rock City Transplanters game with the Smokies, myself and my friend Corbett Kessler and some of his friends were talking to Brandon Hughes in the Tennessee Smokies bullpen, you know, during the game, during that Transplanters game, July of 2021, because, you know, he was just willing to talk about it. And of course, they were asking him questions about the new sticky stuff rules and what his thoughts were and all this stuff. Probably against it. Yeah, I think I think it was something along the, wrong, along the lines of that. But he mentioned, I mean, he's a, he was a reliever and he was in the bullpen, but he mentioned that he started his minor league career as an outfielder. And he transitioned to being a pitcher, which I thought was really unique because most of the time you see former pitchers being transitioning to outfielders because their arm's dead, you know. And an example, Rick Ankeel. Like Rick Ankeel, yeah, exactly, you know. So I thought that an was, all-star outfielder, nonetheless. Right, an all-star outfielder for the Cardinals, yeah, for many years. And I thought that was really unique for him to be the opposite. And so I asked him after Corbin and then we're done talking. I asked Brandon. I said, you know, why did you change from being an outfielder to a pitcher? And he said, at the time, I think it was like maybe this. Maybe it was. I think it was like it wasn't 2021. I think it was like maybe 2019 or 2018. And he said, well, at the time I made the decision, I was hitting like around 230. And, you know, he he pitched in college. He pitched at Michigan State. He's a Spartan. So he was like a two-way guy in college. Yeah. And the I guess the Cubs scout, scouts, the Cubs coaches, like minor league coaches were like, hey, if you're, if you're really serious about making the Major League Baseball, I think it's best you go back to being a pitcher because you're just not cutting as a hitter. He didn't swing a good enough stick. Yeah, and I told him, and when he explained that, I said, well, that's a no-brainer. He said, yeah, it was a no-brainer. You know, and so now at the time we were talking to him, I didn't know who he was. But after the game, you know, I looked him up on the Smokies roster, and it's like, okay, yeah, this, this guy's name is Brandon Hughes, and he, he did play for Michigan State, so that's really cool. And then when he, he made it to the majors this, this past season, 2022, I was like, oh, man. That is so cool. cool. Yeah, so I just – It was really neat to see some of the guys from when I was working in the Biscuits clubhouse that actually – like Blake Snell was pitching for the Biscuits when I was working there. You know, guys like that. Yeah. Really cool down-to-earth dude. But and, it's, and the funny thing was during the game, like when we're talking – like, you know, at times when we weren't talking, one of Corbett's friends had uh, a phone ringing sound effect on his phone and he pranked the Tennessee Smokies pitchers in the bullpen by playing that uh, the ringer um, sound effect to emulate the phone call for the bullpen phone. So they were pranking them, thinking that the dugout was calling the bullpen when they really weren't. So when the pitcher would go, like Brandon or somebody would go up to the phone in the bullpen, Brandon, they would answer the phone and say hello, and like they didn't, wouldn't hear anything. That's so they thought – That's funny. <laughs> And then the ninth inning, the guy fessed up to Brandon and said, hey, you know, we were pranking you the whole time with the football bullpen call. And he just thought it was funny. He told his teammates, and they all laughed. And Brandon gave one the guy who pranked him a, a ball after the game. He's like, here you go. You know, that was good. 
<laughs> so I just, yeah, so I just, I just, I, you know, it's not Ernie Banks related, but it's Cubs and baseball related. And I just wanted to get out there because he made, he made the majors this past season. I just wanted to congratulate him for making the majors and hopefully you have a long career. I mean, I think he was 26 when he made it last year and, you know, and even if you don't have a long career, Hey, you were a major league baseball player. You made it, you know? So, so. <laughs> but that's all I really got to say, you know, I mean, you have anything else to add? I think we pretty much covered it, man. Um, and yeah, now that we're on this, now that we're doing this zoom, I'm going to, uh, about to get somebody like Sven on. And so I'm sure there's a few other people we know for some certain topics we could get on. Um, kind of broaden our horizons and bring a better product to the people. Yeah. And hopefully, I'll, hopefully I can get the video portion of this figured out. It'll be a complete learning curve on editing it. Same oh, way yeah. the sound was in the beginning, but. Of course, you know. Um, this, this episode will. I can guarantee I can make it into sound while I work on the video. So, yeah, um, I'm just glad. I'm glad that we were able to do it because eventually we were going to have to do this. Like when I like if I when I move out and move away, eventually this was going to have to happen. You know. Yeah, and whenever Sonia finishes up school and we move wherever she gets the job, big time law job at, you know. Yeah, as much as I like doing the in person recordings, like I don't mind driving to Birmingham or Alabaster really to visit you and i'm sure you don't mind coming back to huntsville it's just you know we get busy with life and we just yeah, don't have time to see each other yeah but so we're but gonna be doing I'm, this on zoom from now on unless we're both in like if you know for a holiday or something we could squeeze one in we can do one in person but yeah but you know i mean this is good i'm glad we're able to finally able to get this off the ground you know but as always guys that was ernie bakes and i'm patrick and i'm matthew and uh Thank y'all for listening to Baseball History 101. Y'all know what to do. Like, write, subscribe, and tell your friends. Thanks, guys. Nice to be, nice to be with all you great Cub fans. You are the greatest in the world. And I wish I could thank all of you for the support you have given all the Cub all through the years. So someday we'll go all the way. A one, a two, a three. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some Peter's and Cracker Jacks. I